Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Hebrews, chapter 7. Beginning in verse 11 this morning is where we'll pick up our continued study in the epistle of Hebrews. I told you as we began this chapter that we're now at the pinnacle of that argument uh, that the author of Hebrews is about to make, and it starts in chapter 7, verse 1, and it goes all the way to verse 18 in chapter 10. That's really what he's trying to get accomplished here. What's the pinnacle of that argument? That Jesus Christ's high priesthood is legitimate, that it is historical, that it is prophetic, and that it's better than Aaron's. Now, why was that priesthood so important to those coming out of Judaism? Remember, the Jews inherently understood that God was unapproachable because of our sin. They understood that you could not casually walk into the Holy of Holies and just speak with God any way that you chose, any way that you wanted to, that nobody had that access. They knew they needed a mediator, not just any mediator, but a mediator that God had chosen. Remember, we looked at that passage in Exodus chapter 19, where God's presence was just going to be on the top of the mountain. Remember, he said to them, if you set foot on the base of that mountain, you will die. Matter of fact, if any animal even comes near there where my holy presence is there, you will die. They understood that, right? They understood, okay, you don't just come into the Holy of Holies. You don't just come into the presence of God any way that you choose and on your own terms. They understood they needed a mediator. At first, that was Moses. Moses was the mediator between them, and he gave the, God gave him the law, and he brought it down. They understood that. When somebody tried to usurp the authority of Moses and Aaron, remember what happened in the Korah rebellion? Not so good, right? He struck down 250 of them, opened up the earth, swallowed them in. When others complained, said, this isn't fair, another 14,000 then went with them. God has a very specific way in which you can approach him. We don't get to do it on our own terms. He is holy. We are not. They understood that. So the author of Hebrews has proposed that Christ is that new great high priest. He's the one that's going to give us access to God. And for every believer, that's what we want. We want access to God. Now, you can't have access to God unless your sin is atoned for. But every believer wants access to God. We all want that. And so he's trying to demonstrate that Christ is our great high priest. He's that new mediator. And he, there's a new priesthood that's greater than the old priesthood. And how does he propose to do that? Well, he did that. He proposes to do that by demonstrating that Christ is from the line of Melchizedek. And that Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood of Levi and Aaron. So he wants to make sure. So remember, he did that in verse 1. He said, listen, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. How do we know that? Because it was Melchizedek who blesses Abraham, and the greater always blesses the lesser. Secondly, he said, uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And again, you don't pay tithes to somebody unless they're greater than you. Then having established that in verses 4 through 7, he said Melchizedek was so great, even Abraham the patriarch, he puts that in there, patriarche means what? First father. He's the first father of Israel. It's through him, the entire line of Israel uh, comes from. 
Then in verse 5, his second point is the Levites were commanded in the law to receive tithes from their brothers. God had set it up that way. Since the Levites were the ones who would be doing the temple work, they wouldn't have time to be able to tend to their flock and their crops. And so God made a provision for the rest of the tribes to support them while they were doing the work of the ministry and serving God. So the sons of Levi's ability to collect tithes didn't come because they were greater, it came because God said so in his law. They didn't pay their tithes, Israelite didn't pay their tithes uh, to the Levites because uh, of any inherent superiority. They did it because God told them to do that and they wanted to honor God and obey God. So that's a big difference. When you compare that to what Abraham, why Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Then, point three, Abraham voluntarily offered a tithe to Melchizedek. He wasn't commanded to do it. He did it voluntarily. And remember, he would not have done that unless he understood that, uh, unless he understood that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Would not have done that. So Abraham voluntarily tithed implied that Melchizedek was superior, and not only was Abraham not commanded to do it, he wasn't even related, right? He was, uh, he was not related to him at all. Point number four, the lesser is always blessed by the greater. And again, I told you Melchizedek would have only been seen as truly a blessing if it was acknowledged to have come from God. Remember, Melchizedek is blessing Abraham. Abraham has already received the blessing from God in the Abrahamic covenant. Matter of fact, Abraham, at this point, is the most blessed human being on the planet. But Melchizedek blesses him. How blessed do you have to be? How great do you have to be to be blessed or to bless the most blessed person on the entire planet? You've got to be pretty great. That's his point. And so, verse 7, he says, Without any dispute, don't even try to argue it. The lesser always ties to the greater. The lesser is always blessed by the greater. Then in verse 8, we looked at point number 5. Melchizedek's perpetual priesthood could still theoretically receive tithes because there's no record in Scripture that his priesthood ever ended. And yet, the Levitical priests, they all died, and then they were replaced by another priest. They did not receive tithes after they died. Another person stepped in their place, and then that person received tithes. And so, uh, again, very detailed records were kept to ensure that only those from the tribe of Levi, only those who were descendants of Aaron, could be priests. But Melchizedek's priesthood is perpetual. It never ends. Verses 9 and 10, though, the author's reasoning is that the offspring of Abraham, especially Levi, who shared in Abraham's promises, also share in Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek. He's saying, listen, Genetically, if you will, right, or in your ancestry, you were already in the genetics. And since Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, then all of your offspring, in, gen in, in a sense, did the same thing. And so that's where we left it off. So then having demonstrated that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and that the Melchizedekan priesthood was greater, the author now anticipates the question on every mind of these believers coming out of Judaism, why then do we need another priesthood? Okay, I get it. Melchizedek is greater. I got it. I get it that this priesthood is greater. But why do we need a new one? I mean, that doesn't, in their mind, they, it, they couldn't wrap their head around it. Well, he begins to answer that question 
in verse 11. Let's look at that together. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Okay. That clock up there says it's like 20 to 6. Is that a.m.? So I got a lot. I can really time to elaborate here. Okay. Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So here's our first point in these three verses here that I want you to grasp. Here's point number one. Perfection cannot be obtained through the Levitical priesthood. Okay? Perfection cannot be obtained through the Levitical priesthood. Look at that word, perfection. Now, in Scripture, that word perfect uh, is often used in a sense of maturity or completeness or fulfillment. Okay? You come to maturity. You come to perfection. Be perfect. Be complete. Be fulfilled. Fulfill all that God had intended. That's what that word uh, means. Okay? In the book of Hebrews here, it's used to refer to the goal and the aim of Christianity, which is a right relationship with God. A right relationship with God. Or reconciliation of men to God. That's how the author of Hebrews uses that word. He's talking about being in a right relationship with God. And in order for us to have a right relationship with God, it involves the removal of sin. Somehow, some way, sin has to be atoned for in our lives. We can never have a right relationship with God if we don't address this issue of sin. Which sin, of course, lies as the obstacle preventing free and unhindered access to God and fellowship with him. If we haven't addressed the issue of sin, we do not we are not reconciled with God and we do not have a right relationship with him and we do not have unhindered access to him. That issue of sin has to be addressed. Which is why when you hear today that many from pulpits are not talking about the word sin, they're not addressing the devastating effects of sin. That's a scary proposal because what you're saying is is that you can have a right relationship with God. You can be reconciled to God. You can have access to God, but you don't have to address this word sin. I can't tell you how antithetical that is to the word of God. Can't begin to tell you that. If perfection, and remember that you have to have this removal of sin it has to be atoned for in some way. Who was responsible for atoning for sin under the old covenant? The priests. They're the ones who administered the law. They're the ones who administered the feasts and the festivals. They're the ones who administered the sacrifices to atone for our sin. So in their, in the function, that was the function of the priesthood. But then the author asked, if perfection could be obtained then, if you already have completeness, if, you already have, if you're already reconciled to God through the Levitical priesthood, then why do we need another priesthood? If it was already accomplishing what God had intended it to do, why do we need another? There would be no need for another priest if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood. Notice that word, another. You should have it highlighted or circled in verse 11. There's two words 
in the original language for the word another. One word is heteros, like heterosexual, right? Another of a different kind, all right? Another of a different kind. Then there's the word alos in, in Greek, which means another of the same kind, like I'll have another one, right? You don't mean another of a different kind. You mean I'll have another, you know, another plate of spaghetti, another of the same kind. I'll have another one. That's where that word would be used, another of the same kind. The word that you see here in this text is another of a different kind. Why do we need a, another priest of a different kind? That's what he's asking in this question. The priestly order of Melchizedek and that of Christ is altogether different from the Levitical line. So, why do we need a different kind of priest and a different kind of priesthood? Keep in mind that the law of Moses and the sacrifices, that sacrificial system that accompanied it, were seen as virtually untouchable. Nobody messed with the, nobody messed with the priests. Nobody messed with the law. Nobody messed around with the sacrifices. Nobody tried to stroll into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. They did things and strived to do exactly as God had said. And when that didn't work, they added more laws of themselves to try and make it even more stringent. But something only really attains perfection. It only really attains completeness. It only really attains fulfillment if it accomplishes its intended purpose. If I design something and it's supposed to accomplish B, but it never accomplishes B, it's not complete, right? Whatever it is that I have decided, well, what God has said here is that he wants perfection. What does he want for perfection for his children? He wants you to be reconciled with him. He wants your sins to be atoned for so you can have a right relationship with God. He wants your sins to be addressed, and he wants you to have unhindered, unfettered access to him at any time. But that could not happen through the Levitical system. The priesthood was the conduit for the people receiving the law, and it was designed to establish reconciliation with God and thus give him access through the administration of the law and the sacrificial systems. But the law and the priest who administer it could only provide temporary reconciliation. They could only provide a covering of your sins, not a complete atonement for your sins. And you could only have access through the priest on that one day a year. So it never accomplished what, God, what God's desire was. And what was God's desire? Perfection complete, unfettered, unhindered access to him at any time. Complete reconciliation with God. How does that happen? You have to be in a right relationship with God. That cannot happen if your sins are not atoned for. Matter of fact, the author of Hebrews repeats this throughout this epistle. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19. You're in verse 11 right now. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, made nothing complete, nothing fulfilled. Look at uh, Hebrews 9, verse 9. He's talking about the, uh, he says, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that 
the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper what? Perfect, complete, fulfilled, intending its original purpose. And then, of course, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. To demonstrate that the law and the priesthood under this old system, under the Levitical system, could never bring about perfection, the author of Hebrews wants us to see three things here. He's going to say, first, I want to show you these three things just to show you that this is true. The first one is, if the Levitical priesthood could bring about perfection, God would have never prophesied about a new order of priesthood under the order of Melchizedek. He's saying, listen, if that was God's intended purpose all along, why was he telling us, why was he prophesying before that there'd be a new order of priesthood? If the one that he originally established could accomplish what God wanted us to accomplish. Now somebody may have said, well, hang on a second here. Hang on. You're saying that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron and Levi, but Aaron and Levi were, that came after Melchizedek. So maybe the Levitical law is the replacement for that one. How about that? Huh? That's maybe that's what God had intended. And he says, how then can you say that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical one when it came after it? So to answer the subjection, the author cites Psalm 110. Psalm 110. So keep your place here in Hebrews chapter 7 and go back to Psalm 110. We've referenced this throughout, but we haven't really looked at it. It's time we look at it. Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So, the author cites Psalm 110, which was written by whom? David. When would David have wrote this? At the height of the Levitical priesthood at the height of the Levitical priesthood. So in that psalm, which is clearly a messianic psalm, David predicts that one will sit at God's right hand as a king. He'll also be a priest, but he'll be of the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews' argument is, if the Levitical priesthood and the law were able to bring about perfection or reconciliation to God, giving us unhindered access, why did God ever predict this new priest would come from a different order? and come from the order of Melchizedek. If perfection was achieved through that Levitical system, then why was the Messiah not a Levitical priest? It's a fair question. If we could achieve this perfect reconciliation, this unhindered access to God, why would there ever be a need for another priesthood, a new priesthood? The answer is, is that that Levitical priesthood could never accomplish that. The priesthood, 
The purpose of the priesthood was to reconcile to God through sacrifice for our sins, but the Levitical priests could only give a picture of that, couldn't they? They could never really bring about full reconciliation. They could just picture what it would be like. They could never give a full cleansing of sin. They could just point to a picture of what that would be like. When they sacrificed a lamb and sprinkled its blood on the altar, it was a picture of what would happen when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. All of that was just a picture, not the actual things. It was therefore imperfect, and it could never then give full and complete unhindered access to God. And that which is imperfect can never bring about the perfect. So point number one, perfection cannot be obtained through the Levitical priesthood. How do we know that? If it could be obtained, then God would have never prophesied about a new order of priesthood. Point number two, we see in verse 12. Verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of the law also. So point number two is that a change in the priesthood necessitates a change in the law. What do we mean there? If God intended all along to bring about another or a different kind of priest and a different kind of priesthood, as Psalm 110 indicates, then any change in the priesthood would necessitate a change in the law. Again, it's important to understand how radical that phrase would be to a Jewish person. What do you, what do you mean we're going to change the law? What do you mean? the priests aren't going to be offering sacrifices. That's what God said. That's what we have written in the Torah. What do you mean? There's a new kind of priesthood. Just think about how unthinkable that was to them. And law, the law of Moses was the foundation of their very culture. How could you ever even think about, talk about change in the law? But the author is arguing here, that the priesthood is so closely linked with the law that if you change the priesthood by necessity, you're going to have to change the law. You couldn't change one without the other because they're interlinked. The priesthood is associated with the law. If you don't have the law, you don't need the priesthood. And vice versa. So, again, look at verse 12 here. And that word for change here, incidentally, when he says here, for when the priesthood is changed, that word means not to add to another, it means to replace. It means to put in place of another. That's not adding to something that already exists. It means replacing it with something else. So the priesthood of Melchizedek was not added to Aaron's, it replaced it. Look at the text again in verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, replacing one for the other. Here's the translation. The Levitical priesthood has been replaced, and replacing the Levitical priesthood demands or necessitates a change in the law also. Whenever you talk about replacing the law, you start a whole series of debates. Even today, it's kind of a thorny subject, isn't it? When we start talking about which laws apply, the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, the theocratic laws, it goes on and on and on. You start asking yourself, well, if that's true, if, if something replaced the priesthood and the law was changed, oh, 
then you have to ask yourself in the New Testament, to what extent do we have to obey the Old Covenant laws if there's a New Covenant? Does that mean all the Old Testament laws are under the Old Covenant are no longer valid? Do we have to even obey the Ten Commandments in the Old Covenant? Well, first off, whenever you see that word law in the Old Testament, you need to watch carefully the context by which it is used. Sometimes when we read about the law, and the same is true in the New Testament as well, but sometimes the law refers to just the Ten Commandments. Sometimes the law refers to just the five books of the Old Testament called the Torah. Sometimes it refers to the entire Old Testament scripture, everything, the law, the prophets, and the writings, all called the law. And as we saw in our adult Bible study in uh, Sunday, Sunday mornings last week, the law can also be used as a metaphor. It can be also used and personified like Paul uses it in the New Testament. So in this passage, the context is reconciliation to God, unhindered access to him through the law and the Levitical priesthood, which was accomplished through feasts, festivals, and sacrifices and ceremonies. That's what many would recognize today. We'd call it the ceremonial law. We'd say, that's the part that is no longer valid. I believe that's what the context would demand. He's saying, listen, if the Levitical priesthood is to be replaced in a different kind of priest and a different kind of priesthood, then that necessitates a change in the law. Which laws? The ones that relate to that priest and that priesthood giving us access to God and reconciling us to God. Those laws, that portion of the law. So that does not indicate that all of God's laws are no longer valid. It's just saying that portion. He's not saying it's okay for you to lie and steal and cheat or be immoral or any other God's moral laws. What he is saying that under a new priesthood, with a new priest administering a new covenant, that that old Mosaic covenant and ceremonial requirement under the law has been replaced. So this is the author of Hebrews' argument so far. Perfection could not be obtained through that Levitical priesthood. How do we know that? God would never have prophesied about a new priesthood if he intended that other one to accomplish what he wanted. Secondly, a change in the priesthood necessitates a change in the law. The law and the priesthood are inextricably linked. And so you can't change one without the other. And that a changing of ceremonial laws that were intended to reconcile men to God and give unhindered access to them. Here's our third point, point three, and then we find that in verses 13 and 14. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Okay, he says, listen, to demonstrate how obvious it is that there's been a change in the priesthood and the law, the author states what everybody knew and that Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. And he says it's obvious there's been a change in the law because the Old Testament did not allow anybody to be a priest except from the tribe of Levi. And clearly, Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And yet... He's a priest. Notice that statement in verse 13. The one concerning whom these things are spoken of. Who is that? That's Christ. How do we know that? Because he's referencing Psalm 110 verse 4. 
the Messiah. And so that's clearly a messianic psalm. In fact, these are the things about Christ's priesthood that are being declared in Psalm 110, verse 4. Let's take one more look at that, shall we? Psalm 110, verse 4. I want you to see this here. Just a few things here. We'll begin in verse 1. This is a psalm written by David through the Holy Spirit, written probably 500 years in to the Levitical system. He says, the Lord, that should be Yahweh, right? Jehovah God. The Lord said to my Lord, Adonai, right? The Lord says to my Lord, which would be God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. Notice here, this passage is clearly messianic. It's about the Messiah. And thus, the one to whom he's speaking about is Jesus, the Messiah. And for the priesthood was considered, Judah was not merely another alos, but another of a different kind, heteros. Again, the same word. Not another priest in the line of Levi, a different kind of priest in the order of Melchizedek. Nowhere in any of the Mosaic law was there a provision for any tribe of Judah to ever minister as a priest. And if you're not sure about that, we don't have time today, but you can look at 2 Chronicles 26, when King Uzziah tried to be a priest. Remember what happened to him? A little thing called leprosy. The mere fact that Jesus descended from Judah and fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 110 and yet is still called a priest by God is a clear change, is a clear uh, proof, a clear proof that the law had changed and that Jesus was ushering in a new priesthood from a new order just like God said would happen. All right, let's pull this together and then apply it here. God wants perfection. He wants perfection in his relationship with us. What is perfection? Perfection is the complete fulfillment of the requirement between God and man of reconciliation. He wants complete reconciliation with his children. That cannot happen unless your sin is atoned for. What would be the result of a complete reconciliation with God, you have unhindered access to him at any time. At any time. But there was an issue with the old system, and that issue was it could not be obtained. You could not get God's desire of perfection through that old system. How do we know that? Well, God would have never prophesied about it like he did in Psalm 110. And because there was a change in the priesthood, there was also a change in the law. How do we know that? Because Jesus is our great high priest. He's a king and a priest, which couldn't happen under the law. So there's obviously a new order. 
And the change in the law was a change to all those ceremonial laws and sacrifices were just a picture of what God had in mind and would fulfill. Jesus is that great high priest for the new order of Melchizedek. How do we know that? Because he's a high priest, yet he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's a high priest from the order of Melchizedek, just like God had prophesied. So here's the point. God never intended the old covenant priesthood to be a permanent and to achieve the things that he wanted. God's intention all along was that that would be fulfilled by his son. Before the law was ever given, think about this for a second. Before the law was ever given to Moses, God knew that it could never fulfill what he had desired for his children. It, the law, that whole system, that whole Levitical system, and the priests, all of those requirements, all of those ceremonies, even the way the tabernacle and the temple was designed, were all a picture of what we have in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all of that. All of that. If we could have achieved reconciliation with God, having our sins permanently atoned for, having free and unhindered access to God through the old covenant, then there would never be a need for a new priesthood. And yet God prophesied way back in Genesis 14, those verses we skipped over real quick and said, we're having trouble pronouncing his name, Melchizedek, trying to figure out how he fits into the story of God's redemptive plan for man. And here it is in Hebrews chapter 7, that that king that Abraham paid tithes to, that king who blessed Abraham was a picture of what would happen when Jesus Christ would come on this earth and fulfill every one of those requirements of the law. It's amazing when we stop and think about that. If we could have achieved the atonement for our sins through work, through sacrifice, then there would have been no need for Christ's atoning work on the cross. If I could have complete reconciliation with God, if I could have complete access to God by just sacrificing a bull or a lamb, then Jesus Christ never needed to come and come in the flesh and live a sinless life and die on the cross because I would have already earned it. I would have already achieved it through my follow-through of the sacrifices. But the mere fact that Christ did come is a reminder that the old priesthood was just a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the fact that Christ did come as a priest means that old system was never intended to bring full reconciliation, full and unhindered access to God. Beloved, God desires complete and total reconciliation with his children. Complete and total reconciliation. And that can only happen in the new covenant with our great high priest who has reconciled us to God. We now stand justified before God. What does justified mean? It means we've been declared not guilty. It's a legal term. It's a forensic term. Declared not guilty. Were we guilty? Have we ever sinned against God? Yes. It doesn't mean that we're not guilty. It means that we're declared not guilty. How come we're declared not guilty? Because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. He paid the price. He justified. We are justified, not because of our righteousness, but because of his. His righteousness is credited to us. And because his righteousness is credited to, credited to us, we can now stand unhindered, 
unfettered before God because his righteousness is credited to our account. Do you understand how significant that would be and how those listening to this little church in Hebrews that were under persecution and they're thinking, I never have access to God. I, only the priest has access to God once a year. And every time I bring my bull and goat there and it's sacrificed, I walk away knowing I have to come back again. So my sins were never completely atoned for. They're just covered for a little bit until I sin again, which could be on my walk home. Then I'm going to have to turn around and come back again and sacrifice again. It was a never, ever, ever increasing, ever again reminder that you could not you could not atone for your own sins through that system. And just like the law, the law could never save you. It was never intended to save you. What was it intended to do? To show you how far short we fall to the standard of perfect holiness. That's what it takes to be reconciled to God. We could never do that without Christ. We could never do it. I don't think we grasp that because we don't know what it's like to have to walk to the temple every month, every week, every year, all those specified times, and sacrifice again and again and again. If we did, we might have a better understanding of how significant this really is. Because those of us on this side of the cross, we already know our sins are atoned for. But on that side of the cross, they never knew that. They just knew it was covered. They just knew it was covered for a while. How do we know it on this side of the cross? Because Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. And the veil was torn from top to bottom. And when it did that, it gave us what? Full, unhindered access to God, which was what everybody in the Old Testament was craving. What a wonderful truth the author of Hebrews has reminded us of this morning. He's reminded us that God not only desired perfect reconciliation with his children, he also secured it through the atoning work of his son on the cross. He is our great high priest. He has ushered in a new covenant with a new priesthood, securing for us what could never be achieved under the old. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the basis of the assurance you have of your salvation. He is the one who has secured it for you. You are indeed reconciled with God. We falter. We falter constantly, but he never does. We struggle with sin like we talked about on, in our adult Bible, adult Bible school. He never did. He was tempted and yet without sin. You and I, as believers, we know our sins are indeed forgiven, that they are as far as the east from the west, and that you have unhindered access to them at any time. Will you not take advantage of that and understand through your prayers that you now have something that the old saints only dreamed about? Will you not understand the gravity of what that means? That through your prayers, at any time, God hears you. He hears you. And not only that, his son, seated at his right hand, is advocating for you nonstop, never ceasing. Beloved, that should give you great, great comfort. I know it does me.
Well, he's going to expand upon that all the way through chapter 10, but to find out the rest, you'll have to come back next week. What a wonderful truth that is, is it not, beloved? What a wonderful truth. I hope that gives you great comfort. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for just your truth. Lord, it's hard to kind of work through this tough theology in Hebrews, but Lord, it's so comforting when we when it comes clear to us. That's been your plan all along, Lord. As you wanted perfection, you wanted reconciliation with your children, and you didn't want it part way, and you didn't want it contingent upon anything we would do. You wanted a contingent upon faith. And your grace is evident throughout. Father, thank you. And even those words ring hollow for what you have accomplished for all who have put their faith and trust in you. Dear Lord, I pray if there's one in our midst today, perhaps they've never understood that. Perhaps they've never even heard that. I pray today, Lord, that you would work in their hearts and draw them to yourself. And they would recognize that they're a sinner and that they cannot come to you on any terms but the terms that you have laid out. You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Lord, we cling to those wonderful truths. And for those of us, for those of us, Lord, who have put our faith and trust in you, it's a great assurance of our faith. Thank you, Lord, for that. I pray as believers we would take full advantage of that benefit of coming into your very throne room and offering our praise, and our prayers, and our supplications. Lord, thank you. Be with us now, Lord, in Christ's name.